Good morning. Are you ready for a new day? Yeah. Oh, yay. <laughs> um, you are going to start this day so lucky to be 45 minutes with Pete until 10 o'clock. Digging into archaeology and the New Testament and Jesus. You probably remember during the study tour, you're, you focused on, he focused on at least, the Old Testament and archaeology. And now you're going to move on to the New Testament and archaeology. So that's what you're going to do for the first 45 minutes. Then you have a 15 minute break to move over to the auditorium. And we'll join the open event and listening to John Dixon and Amy or Ewing. And then it's lunch. And after lunch, we move back here for another couple of hours with Pete. Yes. And so on during the day. Yeah. Sounds good? Mm -hmm. Please ask questions if anything, if you didn't get it, or if there's some difficult English word, or whatever. Yes. And I'll try and see if I can find the rest of the group. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Grant, thank and, you. Uh, I see you all in there in yeah. Okay. Ah, Bjorn. I looked at the archaeology of the Old Testament, or an, uh, an overview of that. Uh, the audio recording of uh, that teaching uh, is uh, on my podcast now, uh, if you haven't got that already. Uh, and you can access my podcast uh, through iTunes or Podbean or go to my website, uh, which the address is on these giant business cards which are on the table over there. Um, in terms of New Testament archaeology, there's a reference on the timetable sheet uh, to the uh, little e-booklet, uh, fully colour-illustrated e-booklet I published uh, with the Christian Evidence Society uh, called Digging for Evidence, Archaeology and the New Testament. Uh, so that's a, a good uh, resource to go to uh, for this. And uh, let's jump in. So archaeological, archaeological evidence and uh, Jesus uh, in, in particular, uh, New Testament. Uh, we live in an age of deeply uninformed claims about the historical Jesus. Uh, popularised uh, by uh, particularly uh, new atheist uh, writers uh, and their ilk. Uh, we live in an age where people very often come across claims made by authority figures in culture to the effect that Jesus probably didn't even exist, uh, as is claimed, for example, by Victor Stenger in his book The New Atheism there, uh, illustrating Stenger. 
uh, or that the Gospels are works of fiction, as Richard Dawkins uh, states in his uh, best-selling The God Delusion, or books that put around the idea uh, that uh, the thought that Jesus was divine was uh, an in innovation, a, a new idea uh, decided upon at the Church Council of Nicaea, which happened uh, in the 4th century in 325 AD, uh, as uh, this idea had been uh, put around by the, 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 the novel uh, The Da Vinci Code uh, by Dan Brown. Uh, and it's very interesting and useful how we can go to archaeology to undermine, uh, to refute those kind of claims. Uh, a few words of reminder, we covered this uh, in, uh, whilst we were in London, uh, but archaeology, quick definition, the systematic study of the material remains of past human behaviour. And of course, some of those material remains are, are writings on papyrus and so on. Uh, but once those get dug up, they tend to be uh, then turned over to the, uh, the textual uh, critics. Um, there's a whole subject of textual criticism uh, and so on. Uh, Archaeology, uh, we tend to think more in terms of uh, artefacts, uh, although some of them, as we'll see, uh, sometimes have I inscriptions on them, or you dig up a mosaic uh, that has uh, words uh, in it. And just a quick reminder that we have a very limited access to the past through the known chain of its effects. It's kind of... Uh, a surprising, uh, nice thing when we get any uh, evidence from the past. Uh, it's not particularly surprising uh, when we don't have evidence of something from the past. Uh, so critics who adopt a sort of argument from ignorance, a sort of, we don't find any extra biblical evidence for X, Y or Z, therefore it's unreasonable to believe it. They're both ignoring the fact that the biblical claims for X, Y, or Z are evidence for it. Uh, they're invoking the idea that you need uh, independent evidence before you believe something, uh, which, if you followed that rule consistently, would lead to an infinite regress. Uh, and uh, they're just kind of ignoring the way in which it's quite surprising that we sort of get evidence of, of much, because that thing that existed all the way back in history has to have survived until the present day, has to have been dug up, discovered in the present day, and it has to have been recognised for what it is uh, in the present day. And all of those uh, can be quite unlikely. Uh, so to illustrate, um, we've got only 35 out of 142 books of Roman history written by Livy. We've only got uh, four and a half out of 14 books on Roman history that we know were written by Tacitus. So as uh, atheist Victor Steger says, an, an absence of evidence for something is only uh, evidence of absence, evidence that kind of undermines... <laughs> They're on the wrong room. There we go. They've worked it out. Uh, <laughs> undermines those claims 
uh, when the evidence should be there and it's not. If you'd expect to see the evidence, but you don't, then that might undermine your claim. Um, but only under those uh, conditions. So, uh, and again, a reminder of the sort of general argument that can be mounted here from the accumulation of, of case studies uh, from Lydia McGrew gives this uh, illustration in her book, uh, Hidden in Plain View. Uh, she says, if you sample a loaf of bread on, on both ends and, and several points in the middle and you find the bread is good, uh, it would be uh, cavailing. It would be a, being far too sceptical of you uh, to say that, well, perhaps the parts of the bread that you haven't tasted yet just happen to be the mouldy ones. Uh, that is, the more you sample something and you find it good, the more confidence, the more sort of an inferential argument you have for saying the whole thing's probably good. And it's like that with claims from the Bible that we can check with archaeology. The more things from the Bible we can check with archaeology, and that turns out to, to be consistent with or to support what the Bible says, the more and more confident you become that probably the bits of the Bible that you haven't been able to check are probably reliable too. The more what someone says to you turns out to be reliable, the more you think they're probably a reliable witness. So, uh, archaeology allows us to delve into uh, all sorts of different things. I've divided up the territory here into a number of categories and we'll look uh, at some before uh, lunch this morning and we'll look at the last uh, uh, section uh, this afternoon. Uh, but archaeology helps us to look at evidence for historical places, uh, cities, buildings and so on, historical people, uh, uh, from the kinds of names that people had in certain times and cultures to specific names of specific people, specific titles that people held, uh, even relationships between specific people. It also gives us information about the culture of a, of a society, uh, a sort of background cultural uh, understanding of that society. Does that fit the kind of cultural descriptions in a text like the, the Gospels? Uh, and even down to specific beliefs held by people uh, in that culture. So let's start with historical places. such as Bethlehem. Uh, this is a giant blown up picture of one of those little small uh, impressions in clay uh, made during the process of uh, trade documentation. Uh, uh, Ali Sukron uh, from 2012 uh, noting this find says here we can read uh, the word Bethlehem in a clear Hebrew inscription from the first temple period on a bula, uh, one of these little clay impressions uh, found in Israel, uh, arrived from Bethlehem to Jerusalem, maybe about paying some tax. This is the Bethlehem next to Jerusalem referred to in the Bible. And some uh, critics uh, had said, uh, Bethlehem mentioned in the New Testament, it's not mentioned by Josephus, 
uh, there's you know there's no evidence that it existed uh, until uh, a long time after uh, when Jesus is supposed to have lived so you know maybe the Bible got it wrong you see that's an, a an argument from the absence of evidence for something uh, and of course that risks uh, being undermined by people coming along later and finding uh, some evidence uh, that shows that Bethlehem did indeed exist before the time of Jesus. So if we know it existed before him and after him, uh, it becomes quite a complex theory to say, well, maybe uh, it didn't exist just at the time when the Bible said it did. <laughs> or uh, Nazareth, Jesus of Nazareth, this uh, house uh, from Nazareth was dug up in 2010. The excavation director uh, says the discovery is of the utmost importance since it reveals for the very first time a house from the Jewish uh, village of Nazareth, uh, thereby sheds light on the way of life at the time of Jesus. Uh, the building we found is small, uh, modest, it's most likely typical of the dwellings in, in Nazareth at that period. Uh, she says it may well have been a place that Jesus and his contemporaries were familiar with. That's a logical suggestion. So you can't say... Jesus lived here. <laughs> you don't get that uh, kind of connection, but you do get, yes, there was uh, a, 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 a Nazareth uh, at that time period. Again, something that some uh, critics uh, had doubted. There's quite a lot uh, in the Gospels about Capernaum. Uh, Jesus uh, seemed to make Capernaum a, a base of operations uh, for his ministry. And we know, for example, that Peter's uh, mother-in-law lived uh, in Capernaum. Uh, according to uh, the Gospels, Jesus taught in the synagogue in Capernaum. There are 16 references to Capernaum in the Gospels, uh, and Jesus taught in the synagogue there uh, as recorded in Mark 1 and Luke 4. Uh, Luke 7 notes that the synagogue was um, built by or funded by uh, a Roman centurion uh, who was obviously uh, supportive of uh, the local Jewish uh, religion. Uh, whether by uh, personal commitment, because he, he was a uh, what would be known as a God-fearer, a non-Jew worshipper of, of God, or he was simply trying to ingratiate himself with the local populace, get on their good side. Uh, Jesus healed that centurion's servant uh, because of his great faith, we're told. Now here we have a, a picture. The, the, the white stone is uh, a more uh, recent uh, synagogue. But it seems to have been built upon the foundations of the first century synagogue, which are these black basalt stone foundations that you can see at the, the bottom of the, the picture. Uh, so this is uh, very likely the site of and the foundations of that synagogue in Capernaum uh, that uh, Jesus taught in. Also in Capernaum, what's become known as, as Peter's House. Uh, archaeologists discovered uh, the remains of a, a 5th century church in 1968. Uh, 
uh, archaeologists discovered the remains of a 4th century church underneath that 5th century church. And then they discovered that the 4th century church was built around a 1st century house from Capernaum that seemed to have been used as a Christian meeting place since as long ago as the, the second half of the 1st century. And they can tell that uh, from uh, scratched uh, scratchings in the plastered walls of one room of that house uh, where prayers had been uh, scratched into the, the plaster work of the room. And there's also a link to uh, the Emperor Constantine's mother, uh, who in the 4th century uh, did a sort of pilgrimage around the Holy Lands, and she records in her diary uh, from her pilgrimage that in Capernaum, the house of the Prince of the Apostles, which would be Peter, uh, has been made into a church with its original walls still standing. Uh, I.e. the walls of the, the house still standing. It's where the, the Lord cured the paralytic. Remember the story of lowering the paralytic through the roof of, that, the, of the house that Jesus was staying in. Uh, so those uh, sources seem to match up. So uh, this is, seems quite likely that this was Peter's mother-in-law's house uh, that was used uh, by Jesus and his apostles uh, during their ministry uh, based in Capernaum. Or first century Jerusalem. Um, this is not a photo of first century Jerusalem because I haven't got a time machine. Uh, it's a CGI uh, model of first century Jerusalem, uh, but based upon uh, the archaeological and uh, inscriptional evidence and so on that we, we have. Uh, you can see how the temple uh, complex uh, dominates the place. If you've ever been uh, been lucky enough to be to Athens uh, and see the Acropolis in Athens and the way that mountain temple complex, uh, particularly uh, back in the day, would have completely dominated the view of that city. Uh, similarly, Jerusalem was dominated by the, the temple mount here. So again, uh, say the Gospel of John in John 5 mentions this pool in Jerusalem called the Pool of Bethesda, which it says was near the Sheep Gate, and it uh, describes this pool as being surrounded uh, by five covered colonnades. And uh, until the 19th century, there was just no evidence outside of John for the existence of such a pool. And uh, liberal critics of the Bible uh, started saying, well, there's no evidence of that you know, historically. Uh, John must have just you know, made it up. Uh, it's probably symbolic. I mean, you know, there are five colonnades. And what does that remind you of? Oh, the five books of the Torah. So it's kind of John talking in a symbolic way about the importance of Jesus and so on. Uh, and then the archaeologists dug up the pool in the location where John said it was and discovered, lo and behold, that it had five covered colonnades. And John was just accurately describing <laughs> the geography uh, that he was talking about. 
Another uh, significant pool from uh, the Gospels, the Pool of Siloam. Uh, this is mentioned in John chapter 9, beginning there. Uh, in 2004, uh, we stumbled across this uh, first century ritual bathing pool of Siloam uh, when engineers uh, uncovered some ancient steps during uh, some pipe work maintenance uh, that was going on near the mouth of Hezekiah's Tunnel. Now, if you want to remind yourself about Hezekiah's Tunnel, you can go back to my podcast about Old Testament archaeology, and there was a whole section there that we looked at about Hezekiah's uh, Tunnel, bringing in spring water and directing it back into the city so that the invading army uh, wouldn't get access to fresh water when they uh, besieged the city. Uh, and this was uh, where this water uh, got uh, directed to in the city was then used to fill this bit ritual bathing pool that's mentioned in John 9 uh, and as they uncovered the steps you can see this the steps but it was like four-sided uh, steps all the way down to uh, this pool uh, you can see here uh, some of the coins and pottery uh, uncovered at the same time uh, and that's important because archaeologists often use the, the coins and the pottery uh, that you find with things to help date a thing uh, because uh, it, it's basically known styles of pottery change over time so that helps you date something and of course coins are great because they tend to have the date on them of like who's in charge, who's, whose authority has this coin been minted under and if you have a coin and then it's been covered over by, by soil and rubbish and so on, uh, you know that the thing you found uh, has to uh, date from uh, then or earlier. Uh, this is a very recent uh, find. It may not uh, look like much, but it's the, the, the top, the capital of a, a column. Uh, and it's a top of a, a column from what's known as Solomon's Portico, uh, the double colonnade, walkway, that surrounded the temple in Jerusalem, uh, the temple uh, uh, renovated by Herod. This ornamental capital discovered in 2017. Uh, so this uh, capital, that's the, 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 you know, the architectural feature between the, just the, the column and uh, the thing that rests uh, on it, uh, indicates that the, 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 the 41 foot column had a circumference of 30 inches round at its, at its top. Uh, John 10:23, for example, says that Jesus visited Solomon's portico. Uh, Acts 3.11 and 5.12 talks about the early church using Solomon's portico as a meeting place uh, right in the early days of the, uh, the church in Jerusalem. So that's uh, a little overview of some of the, the places uh, from uh, villages uh, to cities to individual uh, locations, uh, pools, buildings, individual uh, dwellings uh, that I mentioned uh, in the Gospels. Let's spend the rest of our time looking at 
historical people that we can get at through the archaeological record. So let's uh, take, this is a very interesting verse to take because Luke uh, is particularly keen to kind of relate what he's writing about to uh, the historical setting. And in Luke chapter 3 verses 1 and 2, he lists off a whole ream of famous people. Uh, he says, in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, the emperor, the Roman emperor, that's number one, when two, uh, Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod, tetrarch of Galilee, now tetrarch's a technical term, it means someone who's a governor of a quarter of a, a Roman province. His, his brother, so Herod's brother Philip, tetrarch of Itria, and Traconitus, who is uh, mentioned in uh, Josephus's Jewish Antiquities, uh, and for Licinius, tetrarch of Albany, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the desert. John the Baptist. Uh, and apart from uh, those two in the middle, uh, I think both uh, 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 yeah, Philip uh, is mentioned by, by Josephus, these other six names are all people that we can, uh, to varying degrees of plausibility, uh, access through the historical uh, archaeological record. So, obviously, because he is the emperor, it's not too surprising that we have quite a lot of archaeology relating to Tiberius Caesar. Here is a bust of Caesar. Here is uh, the so-called uh, Denarius coin, minted uh, between 14 and 37 AD, commonly referred to as the tribute penny because this would have been the coin that Jesus is talking about when he has that whole dispute about should we pay our taxes to the Romans and Jesus says well show me a coin uh, whose image is on this coin and they say oh Caesar's and he says render unto Caesar that which is Caesar's and unto God that which is God of course linking back to the teaching in Genesis about humans are made in the image of God we bear the image of God so we should give ourselves to God but you know if Caesar wants to put his image on a coin we'll give him his coins back yeah <laughs> uh, that doesn't mean you're not uh, devoted to God uh, they pay your taxes uh, two Pontius Pilate again no evidence outside the Bible for this Pontius Pilate uh, until the 1960s, early 60s, 1961, this uh, stone was discovered at Caesarea Maritima in Israel. Uh, it had been incorporated into another building, uh, sort of reused, but uh, it was noticed that there was an inscription on it uh, from its original use. This Latin inscription from the first century uh, you might be able to make it out there. We've got it on the left there, and the bits in the square brackets are, are kind of the uh, 
the kind of obvious missing bits of the words that survive. So the surviving script uh, is uh, Tiberium, Tius Pilatus, Ectus, which pretty obviously is talking about something Tiberium, uh, Pontius Pilatus, Prefectus, uh, which is Pontius Pilate Prefect uh, of uh, Judea. A Tiberium was a, a temple to honour Tiberius Caesar. Uh, so this is Pontius Pilate saying, I paid for this temple to honour the emperor. Please give me brownie points. Yeah. <laughs> and then very recently, 2018, uh, this Pilate ring was discovered. In 2018, scientists announced that a, a seal ring, so a ring used for making seal impressions, uh, was excavated in the 1960s. You see, it had been dug up in the 1960s at Herodium, but no one had noticed what it was. It takes, you dig all this stuff up, and then you have to go through all the finds and interpret them and publish about them. And, and that sometimes take a lot, takes a long time, or people don't get round to it, or the funding's cut, or, you know. But someone in 2018 noticed that this ring, discovered in the 1960s at Herodium, which is the, the mountain uh, fortress of Herod the Great, carried an inscription on it that that's said, of pilots, of, of Pilate, in Greek letters, uh, around a picture of a wine uh, vessel. Uh, so Pilato represents uh, the, the dative form of the name, which would all uh, ordinarily be uh, written uh, slightly different in a slightly different form of, of lettering. We don't need to go into the technical details of that, partly because uh, not being an expert, I don't know, so don't ask. You'll have to look it up. Um, the inscription uh, on a corroded copper alloy ring uh, was finally read using advanced photographic techniques. So evidently it was quite hard to make out what these, these letters said because of the corrosion on the ring, but modern techniques of sort of imaging the ring and, and you know, computer enhancement and stuff uh, probably involved uh, allowed us to read what the inscription was. Now this ring was probably not fancy enough, as it were, not expensive enough as a material copper uh, to have been worn by Pilate himself. Rather, it seems likely that this ring would have been worn by someone who was authorised to act on Pilate's authority. This, this was like their, their kind of deed warrant of, I can do this in the name of Pilate. It was like maybe uh, Pilate's slave in charge of his wine cellar. <laughs> kind of thing, uh, able to say, yeah, I'm going to put this ring impression on this bunch of, of wine, deliver this to Pilate, or deliver this to Herod from Pilate, to get me more brownie points, you know, yeah. Uh, so it would have uh, been a seal to make official communications on behalf of Pilate. Uh, but again, another bit of archaeology just stumbled across relating to Pontius Pilate. Three, Herod uh, the Great, uh, this tetrarch. Uh, we got heavy, a, a, bronze, a bronze coin. Uh, 
On one side we've got a, a picture of a, a tripod and a ceremonial, ceremonial bowl and it has the inscription Herod King and it has the, the year that the coin was struck, uh, year three, i.e. year three of his reign. So that dates this coin to um, 37 BC. So this was struck uh, just after uh, uh, the death and resurrection of Jesus, uh, which scholars date either 30 or 33 AD. I favour 33 myself. In 1996, uh, Israeli professor of archaeology Echad Netzer, a very famous Israeli archaeologist, discovered some broken pottery uh, in Masada. There was a Latin inscription written uh, in ink on it, and the inscription said, Herod the Great, King of the Jews, or King of Judea. Now, this was the first archaeological find to mention the full title for King Herod that the Bible uses. The Bible refers to Herod the Great, King of the Jews. Uh, and this is the first extra-biblical text, as it were, to use the, the identical phrasing. It was part of an, an amphora, a wine pot, uh, uh, dated to about 19 BC. Now, four, Licinius. This is, uh, again, one of those finds that undermines the sceptical argument. Scholars had said, okay, here, clearly, Luke doesn't know what he's talking about when he talks about Licinius, the Tetrarch, because everybody knew about Licinius, who was ruler of a place called Calchas about half a century earlier than Luke talks about Licinius being the Tetrarch uh, of uh, uh, this uh, other place. Um, but then an inscription was found from the time of Emperor Tiberius, dated about 14 to 37 uh, AD, uh, which names Licinius as Tetrarch in Albia, near Damascus. So it turns out that actually there'd been two government officials who had the same name, you know, uh, and uh, Luke did know what he was talking about. Or Caiaphas, uh, the, uh, the official high priest at the time of Jesus, uh, his father Annas was retired, uh, but the Jews basically considered it a job for life. Uh, so uh, both uh, were, in a sense, high priest. Uh, in a tomb located in the south of Jerusalem were discovered several uh, ossuaries. Now, we mentioned ossuaries a few times today. These are these uh, stone boxes. Uh, and during the f first uh, century period in Jerusalem, before the fall of Jerusalem, uh, the Jewish form of burial had become that you would, you would bury someone, you would wait for their flesh to decay, you would go back to their tomb and gather up their bones and put their bones in an ossuary, in a, in a bone box, and probably write on it who they were, uh, and then put that to one side in the family tomb, ready for the next person to die, and you lay them out on the, the shelf in the tomb, and leave them to it for a while and then come back and gather up the bones, 
given their own box, or if you're poor, put, put them in the same box and add a name to it, and so on. Uh, you can see this is quite a ornately uh, decorated uh, box. Uh, this was a rich person to be able to afford, a rich family to afford such uh, an ossuary. And on uh, the side and the back of the ossuary, uh, we find Caiaphas's name, uh, Yosef Bar, son of Caiaphas. So this is Caiaphas's son. Six, uh, the Bulgarian bone box of John the Baptist. Maybe. Possibly. Uh, discovered in 2011. We, we say this with a, a hint of caution uh, because we know that the medieval church in particular did a roaring trade in having the remains of saints in order to draw people in pilgrimage to your church and perhaps buy uh, a memento of their trip to your church which you could then use to repair the church roof and so on. So uh, people sort of, uh, you put together the, the number of uh, skulls of the apostle this or the forearm of the apostle that and you discover that the apostle this or that probably had five arms and three heads, you know. But, but, uh, so, I'm going to try and get the name here. The, the, uh, Pop Kostanantiov, the archaeologist, Greek archaeologist, headed an archaeological team that un un uncovered a reliquary or ancient container for relics uh, in which there are eight bone pieces attributed to John the Baptist. This reliquary was found embedded inside an altar in the ruins of a monastery on Sveti Ivan, that is, John's Island. Uh, a small island in the Black Sea in uh, Bulgaria. Uh, Pop Kostinantov told the media that he bases the support for this find's authenticity on a Greek inscription that was found on another box that was found with the reliquary. And that inscription says, God save your servant Thomas to St John, June 24th. Now, June 24th is the date of the religious feast of St John the Baptist. So the island's name, the monastery's dedication to St John, and this inscription found with the reliquary are considered as supporting evidence for the idea that this might be genuinely connected to St John. And then they had Oxford University do some carbon dating tests on the bones. Uh, they did find that some of the bones uh, were like animal bones. <laughs> Someone had at least padded out the collection at some stage, but the, the, the carbon dating team did date the right-handed knuckle bone in the box to the middle of the first century AD when John is believed to have lived until his beheading that was ordered by King Herod. So the fact that it, this is a knuckle bone that dates to the right time period is also supporting evidence that maybe this is more than simply a made-up medieval collection of 
you know, animal bones and bits and pieces to make some money. So take it with a grain of salt, uh, but, you know, maybe. Archaeological evidence for some other New Testament people. Uh, a 4th century tomb believed to be that of the Apostle Philip, uh, unearthed in 2011. Uh, Alexander of Cyrene, who uh, carried the cross for Jesus uh, on the way to the crucifixion. Uh, this uh, has a word on it that's um, probably intended, it's probably misspelt, but it doesn't seem to relate to anything in, unless it's the Hebrew word for Cyrenian. Uh, and the person making the inscription wasn't a very good speller. Uh, but it talks about uh, Alexandros, son of Simon. Uh, and given how uncommon the names were and, and so on and, and uh, the other names in the tomb and so on, it seems quite plausible that this is uh, the bone box of Alexandra of Cyrene. The, the Barsabbas family, who are mentioned in Acts 1 and Acts 15, uh, one of the Barsabbas's, uh, 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 Joseph called Barsabbas and, and Matthias are put up for replacing Judas uh, in the Twelve. Uh, we have this uh, tomb in which various ossuaries were found, including the names Joseph Barsabbas, Judah, Hebrew form of the Greek Judas Barsabbas, Simon Barsabba, Hebrew version of Simon Barsabba, uh, Mary, daughter of Simon, maybe one of the several Marys mentioned in the New Testament. One of the ossuaries carries the name uh, in, in the Hebrew for Matthias, uh, which is the same name as the other candidate. Uh, from Acts, interestingly. Uh, and coins and artefacts discovered in the tomb clearly show it was sealed uh, less than a decade after the crucifixion. Uh, so this seems to have uh, been the tomb of this Barsabbas family, various members of whom are mentioned uh, in the New Testament. And to round off this morning, three additional names from this ossuary. So uh, pointing to the inscription there uh, and of course you read Hebrew from right to left the inscription says Yachob Bach Yosef Achud Yeshua. Uh, it's a mid-century AD chalk ossuary and it was noticed in a collection from an antiques dealer in 2002. Uh, he'd had it for a while but didn't know its significance uh, and someone who was visiting the shop who could read uh, that script and who knew uh, about uh, the New Testament went, hang on, that's an interesting combination of names because if you translate that into English, reading right from left, that is Jacob, James, Bar, Sanov, Yosef, Joseph, James, son of Joseph, Achud, brother of Yeshua, Joshua, Jesus. James, son of Joseph, brother of Jesus, from the mid-first century, Jerusalem. We know that James, we know this from Josephus, James, the brother of Jesus, was martyred in AD 62. 
29 years after the crucifixion, uh, given that that was 33. Uh, so that would date this ossuary to around about AD 63, 60s, mid first century. Uh, given that you know he's going to be re reinterred uh, in it. Uh, now there was a whole discussion uh, about this, partly because it's not one of those finds that the archaeologists have dug up in situ. It's just been noticed in a collection, which raises the possibility, you know, could it be a forgery? Uh, maybe someone's got an ancient bone box and put an inscription on it to make a fake. Maybe someone's found a bone box with the inscription uh, James, son of Joseph, common names, and added brother of Jesus at the end of the inscription to make a fake. Uh, all of these possibilities. And indeed, uh, there was a, a court case where the Jewish uh, state uh, tried to prosecute the antiques dealer for forgeries. Uh, interestingly, the court case against him collapsed. It seems that the expert witnesses called by the state to testify against him ended up giving testimony that supported the authenticity of the box. And later, peer-reviewed uh, scientific publication uh, pointed to this 2014 peer-reviewed paper in the Open Journal of Geology, uh, which supported the authenticity of the ossuary and of the entire inscription, looking at things like the, the patina, the, the dirt gradually gathered over the years uh, on the surface uh, in, in the, uh, the grooves of the inscription, uh, the way in which little microfossils in the chalk of the ossuary uh, were naturally uh, deposited relative to the inscription, uh, little markings from knocks uh, that it had taken over the years uh, interacting with that inscription and so on but if you want to look up the details of this you can find it online uh, free uh, it's a paper called the authenticity of the james ossuary uh, published in the open journal of geology 2014 issue four uh, and you can get that online uh, and it's uh, the authors are amon rosenfeld uh, et al. Uh, so it was Herschel Shanks, who was the uh, the editor at the time of the B Biblical Archaeological Review magazine, which is an interesting uh, magazine uh, in relation to uh, our subject uh, to subscribe to. Uh, Herschel Shanks said, this box is more likely the ossuary of James, the brother of Jesus of Nazareth, than not. So it's more likely than not that this is uh, the, 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 the people mentioned in the, in the biblical text. Partly that's because of the statistics to do with finding that combination of names altogether. Partly to do with the fact that it was quite unusual to mention uh, a, a relative of the person in the box apart from whose son or daughter they were. Uh, to mention someone's brother was, was kind of indicates that, you, that the brother must have been some kind of significant figure basically. So it says it's likely that this inscription does mention the James, Joseph and Jesus of the New Testament. So welcome back after lunch uh, to part two of this uh, session on archaeological evidence for Jesus. 
In part one, we looked at historical places and people uh, that we can verify using archaeology. And in this part, uh, we're going to look at uh, culture. Uh, very uh, briefly, uh, in terms of the kind of uh, background detail uh, of, say, the Gospels uh, that we can see in the archaeological record, uh, but then in a bit more depth, uh, pursuing the topic of people's beliefs uh, about Jesus, um, particularly undermining, we mentioned at the beginning, some of the sort of sceptical claims about Jesus, such as that he didn't exist, or um, particularly here we'll focus on, um, say, the, the Dan Brown idea that no one believed that Jesus was divine uh, until uh, in that novel, uh, The Council of Nicaea in uh, the 4th century, 325 uh, AD. Um, there are other people who put around this so-called uh, evolutionary Christology that has the idea that Jesus just starts out as a, a human uh, rabbi, uh, but then uh, as uh, that uh, sort of uh, group of disciples after Jesus' death uh, take his message out into the, the Greco-Roman pagan world, uh, pagan uh, ideas about uh, gods, half-gods, uh, sons of gods, and so on, in the sort of pagan sense, uh, get imported into Christianity, uh, and that helps a gradually sort of so-called higher, uh, more and more divine view of Christ gradually evolves over time. And they have to give that time frame to make uh, that uh, shift from a purely, uh, belief in a purely human Jesus to belief in a divine Jesus, uh, make that uh, uh, plausible, you have to give a sort of gap between Jesus, the people who knew Jesus uh, and, and thought of him as human and then people who think of him as divine but don't, don't really have a secure contact with information from people who knew uh, Jesus and therefore you have this idea of a sort of gradual evolution in Christology so that Jesus becomes thought of uh, as divine later on in history, say uh, around the, the, the end of the first century, beginning of the second century. Um, those claims, uh, when you peg it around that time frame, you really need to go to, to literary uh, evidence uh, to talk about. But the claim uh, about the Council of Nicaea putting evolutionary Christology that late as we see, it, it's nice that you can completely undermine that just by going to archaeology, not by talking about the Bible at all. So that's where we're off to. Uh, we'll have a break in about 40 minutes. And uh, let's just start there with a bit of sort of background culture. Just, just one example of this uh, broad area. A first century... Uh, fishing boat. I'll show you a, a closer up of this picture, uh, if you like. Taking a photo there. I'll show you that in a moment. Uh, in uh, 1986, Israel uh, had a drought uh, which caused the waters of the Sea of Galilee uh, to recede in this drought. And two local fishermen, uh, who also happened to be amateur archaeologists, uh, discovered a boat buried uh, in the mud uh, of the now exposed shoreline of the Sea of Galilee. Uh, 
and this boat turned out to be a very well-preserved uh, fishing boat from the time of Jesus. Uh, the design of the vessel, which uh, was over 27 feet long, uh, was evidently typical of fishing boats used uh, at that time uh, in the eastern Mediterranean area. Uh, archaeologists had to kind of race against time to recover the boat from the mud before the waters returned uh, uh, and uh, made the job of recovering it a lot harder and before sort of it would dry out and things like this presumably as well. Uh, various other finds with it alongside it. Uh, we talked about <coughs> the importance of, of the things that you find alongside things, helping you to date them. Uh, pots and lamps, uh, oil lamps found beside the boat helped to date it to the, the first century and that was uh, also confirmed by radiocarbon dating uh, the wooden uh, wood from the planks of the boat. Uh, it's interesting to, to note that in the design of the boat, in the back of the boat, there's a raised section uh, like that where Jesus was said to be sleeping during the storm, uh, before the calming of the storm. Um, the boat could accommodate some 15 people could fit in there, uh, so there'd certainly have been room for Jesus and his 12 apostles uh, on such uh, a boat. Um, Lots more could be said uh, about this area, about the sort of just general little cultural details that authors refer to. Um, and the sort of argument here would be if, as you know, Richard Dawkins says, the Gospels are just works of fiction. Uh, if they're not written by people, meant to be written by people with close contact with the, the geography and the culture and the time period of Jesus, um, particularly for those people who kind of date the Gospels quite late, uh, the later they become, the more uh, disassociated from uh, followers of Jesus you try and make the Gospels, the more surprising it becomes that the writers should get these little cultural details correct. Because this wasn't a day and age, of course, where you could kind of simply, I'm going to write a historical novel and I'll make sure that I get all my little cultural details right by looking it all up on Google or going to my local historical archaeological collection uh, so that I know about the material culture of the day and can describe it correctly and so on. Uh, obviously they didn't have the internet, they didn't have the subject of archaeology. Uh, it was it would have been a lot harder to do that kind of research to kind of fake getting it right uh, as it were. Anyway, there's a, a close uh, up of uh, the boat now in the uh, museum in Israel where you can go and visit it. So let's uh, think about people's beliefs and particularly people's beliefs uh, about uh, Jesus and how we can use archaeology to undermine the kind of uh, Council of Nicaea myth. So Mark uh, Mittelberg just kind of uh, puts the, the, the problem we're going to solve this way. He says the, the common claim today is that belief in Jesus as a unique uh, divine person arose long after he walked on the earth. Uh, such books as the Da Vinci Code have popularised the notion that it wasn't until the Council of Nicaea three centuries after Jesus 
that Christians started worshipping him as the divine son of God. Uh, but the best historical scholarship shows that this is simply not the case. Now I'm going to be drawing uh, in this talk and illustrating uh, a paper I published a couple of years ago in the, the College Journal in Theophilus and I did a, a talk uh, at the European Leadership Forum that you can also find online uh, about uh, this issue of early high Christology uh, and for the, uh, the claims about sort of putting this early high Christology towards the end of the first century, beginning of the second century, right at the beginning of that, that sort of turn of the century. Uh, I look at literary evidence, particularly from the letter of James in the New Testament, which is probably the earliest document in the New Testament and clearly written within a, 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 at a time when Christianity was a Jewish movement. Uh, you know, it's written by a Jew to diaspora Jewish Christians uh, and yet there are a number of indications in that text that the author uh, believes that Jesus is divine in the Jewish kind of sense. Uh, and that, that is even more impressive uh, if you follow the, uh, the evidence that suggests that the author of that book was indeed James, the brother of Jesus. That you have a document from very early on in the Christian movement from the brother of Jesus a Jew talking about Jesus in very elevated Jewish kind of sense of divinity applied to Jesus. But here we'll look, uh, as I say, at what we can get at purely through the archaeological uh, record. So here's a famous passage or infamous passage from uh, the Da Vinci Code. Uh, one character saying uh, to another, Jesus was viewed by his followers as a mortal prophet, a great and powerful man, but a man nonetheless. Not the son of God? Right, uh, Professor Teeming said. Yeah, Jesus' establishment of the son of God was officially proposed and voted on by the Council of Nicaea. Uh, not true. Um, the Council of Nicaea did not uh, propose or vote on any such thing. Uh, there was a debate at the Council of Nicaea about the divinity of Jesus, but it was about how formally to creedly set out their pre-existing belief in the divinity of Jesus. Uh, we can go into more detail uh, uh, in that uh, if you want. Let's go to this uh, church, house church, at Dura uh, Europos in uh, modern-day Syria, uh, dating from the third century. We have a, a sketch here. Uh, you can see um, we've got a courtyard, uh, sort of teaching rooms, uh, and then uh, we have a, a baptistry. And it's this baptistry which is particularly significant because the walls of the baptistry are covered uh, in third-century Christian paintings uh, relating to this baptistry and that context of knowing it's the baptistry of a church is also significant. So here's one of the wall paintings from this house church. Let's see if you can make out. We have here uh, a person lying uh, head up that end on a, a bed and here we have a person uh, carrying uh, a bed a very sort of literally interpreted 
bed. Uh, I might give you a clue. And here we have a figure uh, in a sort of toga, uh, holding out a, an arm, sort of standing over this guy on a bed. Uh, particularly if you take this as a sort of uh, before and after picture uh, and think, okay, this is a picture in a Christian church in a baptistry. What gospel story might this remind you of? If we look at, for example, Mark 2, about Jesus healing the paralytic who was lowered through the roof of Peter's mother-in-law's house in Capernaum that we looked at in part one. And the whole central point of that story, of course, is the issue of forgiveness of sins and Jesus uh, proclaiming to this uh, paralysed guy on his own personal authority uh, that his sins uh, are forgiven. Uh, and everyone, the, the, the Jewish leaders, uh, they're kind of getting up in arms about this and saying, you know, who can uh, forgive sins uh, except God alone? And then we have the, the healing of the paralytic and, and Jesus's uh, argumentative uh, interaction uh, with the Jewish leaders there. Uh, so here we have a picture which I think is pretty obviously describing a biblical story, the central point of which uh, is uh, one of the kind of key passages uh, that talks about uh, the divinity of Jesus. Uh, part of this picture is missing, but you can see clearly we have a bunch of folks on a boat, on the, on the water, and we have two figures who are kind of standing on the water, uh, arms outreached to each other. Uh, I have um, forwarded the PDF of the, of the PowerPoints uh, to Bjorn. I don't know if he's printed them out yet, but he should certainly be able to make them available to you uh, electronically in, in some form. So don't, don't worry about uh, having to take pictures. Uh, if you want them, you can get them all from Bjorn. Although there's, there's one or two slides that I've added since then, but um, I'll warn you. So again, um, think of a gospel story that this would relate to, and that story of uh, after the resurrection, uh, some of the disciples uh, fishing out on the Sea of Galilee, and Peter jumping out of the boat to run to, to Jesus, who's walking uh, uh, on the uh, on the water, um, I've put that in the right place. No, that's um, that's not after the resurrection, is it? That's uh, after they've gone to uh, the other side of the sea, and then anyway, <coughs> I'll edit that out. There's that story in the Gospels about Jesus walking on the water. Uh, I think it's after the uh, uh, feeding the five thousand, uh, and Peter jumps out of the boat to get towards Jesus, and then he realizes what he's doing. A bit like um, Wiley Coyote running off the, the cliff after Roadrunner in the Warner Brothers cartoons and then realising what he's doing and you know, oh, <laughs> falling. Uh, and kind of, you know, when, it, when his fear takes over his faith, he starts sinking. Um, but also against the, you know, what is, Jesus, what is Jesus doing there? It's like Jesus going, hey, look, guys, it's so cool. I'm magic. I can walk on water. Uh, well, actually, when you read the story against the Old Testament background, 
you know, they're kind of think of a verse like uh, Job 9 8 talking about God saying you know, God alone he alone stretches out the heavens and treads on the waves of the sea uh, and you know, one might think that Jesus is kind of uh, performing a sort of literal a literalistic parable that uh, uh, miraculously sort of references uh, against an Old Testament background a claim about his identity. And this is the picture just above, right above the, the, the baptistry pool. Uh, obviously we have a, a bunch of sheep and uh, a shepherd carrying a, a sheep over his shoulders. And we know of course uh, that Jesus is said to have referenced this image of uh, the sheep and the shepherd and himself as the shepherd. He's saying, you know, I'm the good shepherd. Uh, I'm the attractive shepherd, the callous shepherd. Uh, the, the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. But then again, look at that saying against the Old Testament Jewish background uh, where this image of the sheep and the shepherd is applied to Israel and God. So uh, Psalm 23, for example, the Lord is my shepherd. So then Jesus comes along and he, and he applies that, sh that shepherd imagery that Israel applied to God and applies it to himself. Who does he think he is, right? Uh, and here we have a picture above a baptistry in a third century church that's clearly referencing this symbolism it's symbolism that speaks directly to a, a high divine view of Jesus. So particularly when you take all of those together. Yeah. I'm just wondering, do you know uh, who did them? That's the no, I, as far as I'm aware, they're not like, they're not signed. No. Uh, they would have just been uh, produced by some local artist in the, maybe of the congregation uh, at the time to fit the the theme of the room and it's interesting you know because it's a baptistry you've got the uh, the walking on water uh, uh, story um, but uh, there's no sort of indication as far as I'm aware of a, a particular artists artists weren't viewed very highly in ancient culture. They are, they're just craftsmen, artisans. Um, it's not until kind of uh, the Renaissance era where uh, individual artists become sort of famous in their own right as sort of celebrities, as famous figures and you kind of go, oh I've, you know, I've got a Leonardo da Vinci on the wall, or I've got uh, something by Raphael on the ceiling, or um, that uh, artists became sort of these uh, figures uh, of respect. Uh, whereas back in the day, it would have just been, I'll get the artisan to paint something nice. Yeah, so. Uh, here is a discovery from 2005. Uh, it was in the grounds of a prison in Megiddo, and they were going to extend the prison, and they were clearing the ground, and the workmen came across this. Uh, um, sort of uh, settlement including uh, this building with a fabulous uh, mosaic floor uh, and the mosaic floor is 
it retained and most of the building is gone. So you can see a reconstruction of what the building may have looked like here, um, based on its shape and the kind of architecture of the time and so on. But you can see we have basically a, a large room with a, with a, a table in the middle. Uh, the top of the table's gone, but the, the, the plinth of the table, this is a top-down view, is still there. And then uh, around the table are these four mosaics. Uh, now, again, through various pottery and things, uh, this mosaic floor has been dated to around 230 AD. So this is like uh, early 3rd uh, century. Let's look at this mosaic first. Um, in the centre of the mosaic is a picture of two fish. Uh, and given that uh, we know that the fish uh, in Greek, uh, ichthus, was a very early Christian symbol uh, that Christians used as a sort of secret sign uh, to each other uh, during times of persecution. Uh, to say, yeah, I'm a Christian. And even today, some Christians will wear a little fish badge or put a little fish sticker on the back of their, their car, uh, you know, leading some atheists to put little Darwin stickers on the back of their car with a fish with legs, you know, that whole thing. Um, <laughs> the fish symbol. Um, that, uh, that word, ichthus, each... Each letter of that word can be used to stand for another word in Greek. Uh, doing that's called making an acrostic, a word where each letter of the word stands for the beginning of another word, an acrostic. And the acrostic you, you can get out of ichthus in Greek is uh, Jesus Christos Theosota, which is Jesus the Christ, the Messiah, uh, Son of God, Saviour. That's what the, the fish symbol uh, means. Uh, so, of course, here we have a, a fish symbol, uh, early 3rd century, uh, that means Jesus Christ, God's Son, Saviour. But even more impressive is the uh, inscription written in the mosaic, in the little tiles, here, there's another one up here. Uh, this one is particularly significant. Um, there's a close-up view of it. And it's talking about the, the, the table in the middle, which seems to have been you know, the communion table uh, that they gathered around. Uh, they, even, they even found uh, wine jugs, broken wine jugs uh, in the place, presumably used for the communion. Uh, and it's talking about the person who had uh, funded uh, the table. Uh, a lot of the inscriptions are about, like, you know, so-and-so paid for the mosaic. And uh, this inscription says, uh, the God-loving Akeptus uh, has offered the table uh, to God, Jesus Christ, as a memorial. Uh, and that's, uh, they didn't underline in Greek, they overlined to highlight, uh, and it's kind of highlighted in the overlining there, to God Jesus Christ. So you can see uh, the godly, uh, Akeptos, 
etc. Uh, this is known as the uh, Alexaminos uh, Graffito, uh, which is like Latin for graffiti. Uh, it's from uh, scratched into the plaster work of a wall uh, near the Palatine Hill uh, in Rome uh, and dates to the third century. Um, Richard Bockham, New Testament scholar, uh, says it dates to about AD 200. Uh, there's a text here with it with the picture so we have a picture of a a man with a donkey head or an ass's head who's uh, on a cross and another man looking up at the donkey headed guy on the cross with an arm upraised and the uh, the words uh, say uh, Alex Aminos worships his god uh, or maybe you can translate it, Alex Aminos, worship your God. Ha 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 ha, what an idiot Alex Aminos is. He is such a fool. Like, who would worship a crucified man? That is, like, so embarrassing, yeah? Um, and now, uh, here's one slide I have dropped in recently because I was just reading uh, the new book uh, by the British uh, historian Tom Holland, uh, a book called Dominion, uh, this week. And I came across this passage. He's talking about the Old Testament religion and how different it was from pagan polytheistic religion and so on. He's kind of con comparing and contrasting uh, the religious beliefs at the time. And he talks about the, the Holy of Holies in the Jewish temple. And of course, in, in, in temples, in pagan temples, like in the, in the Acropolis, we mentioned before the Acropolis in Athens, if you went to the, the big famous uh, uh, Parthenon uh, on the Acropolis, the uh, temple to Athena, uh, the patron goddess of Athens, uh, there would have been in there a big statue, big painted statue of Athena. You go into the temple of Zeus, there would have been a big painted statue of Zeus and so on and so forth. Uh, and uh, the Greeks all wondered, because they weren't allowed in to the Jewish temple, you know, what is in the Jewish temple, in the heart? And of course we know uh, that there was nothing. Uh, there was the Ark of the Covenant until that got nicked. Uh, and evidently when um, Jerusalem fell uh, after, the, after the time of Jesus and the Romans conquered it, uh, and the general walked in as the conqueror and like I'm gonna I'm gonna look in the Holy of Holies and you know find out what's in there he was astonished to find that there was nothing apart from a block of stone that marked where the Ark of the Covenant used to be it's like where uh, there's no statue and of course that the whole difference between the Jewish conception of the the transcendent God who created the whole universe and therefore can't be contained within it and so on and the, the polytheistic gods who have their origin from the universe the universe pre-exists the gods who did not make the universe uh, however uh, powerful they were and so on so Tom Holland in that context telling that story uh, came across this passage and he says to Greek scholars the question of what might be found in this Holy of Holies was a tantalising one. Posinidius, never knowingly without a theory, claimed that it contained a golden ass's head. 
Others believed it held, quote, the stone image of a man with a long beard sitting on a donkey. That's from Diodorus Siculus. Uh, now, I, I think that's really intriguing. I want to do a bit more research on this before I make too much of it, because I want to try and nail down what's the dating of these opinions, right? Um, but, uh, you know, where could they have got... You know, this is a, like, really strange idea in the first place, doesn't it? Where could they have got it from? Um, it could depending on the dating of, their, of this, could uh, Diodorus have got the idea of a man riding a donkey from the story of Jesus riding a donkey in Jerusalem? Seems quite unlikely um, that such a story about such a, at the time, minor figure making a local disturbance in Jerusalem would be known by a Greek uh, writer, um, certainly before the publication of the Gospels, uh, was he in a position to know a gospel? Uh, but why would he then retroject that particular idea back into what was in the Jewish temple? Um, maybe they knew about the Old Testament prophecy about, uh, you know, God saying your, your king will, will come to you riding on a donkey, which is the prophecy that Jesus is deliberately fulfilling by riding into Jerusalem on a donkey. Um, so maybe they, they know something of this Old Testament background but again, it seems quite an odd thing to kind of push that particular image into, yeah, that's the thing that's in the Holy of Holies in the, in the temple. So I want to do some bit, bit more research about this um, and find out about it. Uh, but it just struck me that together with this Alex Aminos graffiti of like, why is the guy on the cross that Alex Aminos is worshipping, who pretty obviously knew who else is it going to be except Jesus? Yeah, uh, why does he have a donkey head? Uh, to the, to then put that in a context where Greeks are talking about what's in the Holy of Holies in the Jewish temple being a man on a donkey or an ass's head. Maybe, and I put it no stronger than that because I need to do more research, uh, maybe this paint, this picture is kind of referencing through the use of the donkey head on the figure the fact that Alex Aminos is treating this guy on a par with the God of Judaism. Uh, but even if that's not the case, here we clearly have what's obviously a picture making fun of someone who's worshipping Jesus, the, the crucified, you know, what other crucified guy is there that anyone worshipped in any way, shape or form in ancient history? None. Uh, and, of course, worship is something you only do to your God, and he says his God. Uh, so, at the very least, uh, here is someone uh, portrayed as worshipping uh, Jesus as a God, in some sense. Uh, I'm afraid I don't have a picture of this, uh, but this is quite interesting nonetheless. Uh, although it has a boring name. Uh, the technical name for this, uh, 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 what might be the world's earliest surviving Christian inscription, um, reported uh, here by the LiveScience.com in, in uh, 2011. Uh, it's something called uh, NCE156, if you want to look it up. NCE156, 
an inscription written in uh, Greek, dated to the latter half of the second century. Uh, so 150 to 200 in there somewhere. Let's just plump for a medium and kind of think 175 AD, okay? Uh, it alludes, at the very least, it alludes to Christian beliefs. Uh, there's some discussion over how Christian the ideas are, whether there's a sort of melding of Christian and pagan imagery here, Christian and Gnostic uh, ideas maybe. But here's what it says. It, it's a, a funereal inscription. Uh, and the imagery is a little strange to us. This is like the past is a different country. Uh, but if in fact this is uh, a second century inscription, uh, says the, uh, the quote here from uh, uh, guy from Davidson College, uh, Gregory Snyder, researcher about this, uh, says I think it probably is early second century, uh, second century inscription. Uh, it's about the earliest Christian material object we possess. Uh, he thinks it's a funereal epigram incorporating both Christian and pagan elements. And, and th this is what it says. It says, uh, To the bath, the brothers of the bridal chamber carry the torches. Here in our halls they hunger for the true banquet. Even while praising the Father and glorifying the Son. There, presumably with the Father and the Son, is the only spring and source of truth. Uh, so maybe there's a sort of mixture of imagery here, but you, you get the kind of general feeling of, in a sort of funereal context, we have this sort of funereal possession. Now the deceased is finally going to kind of going to the heavenly banquet, where he will finally know the true source and spring of truth uh, uh, with but this phrase particularly praising the father and glorifying the son putting the father and the son in the same phrase uh, is of course redolent of uh, Christian uh, belief uh, and then just to say a little something about uh, the so-called rotos Sator, that's Rotos backwards, square. Um, the Rotos square is found in various ancient Roman places, including uh, Sirencester, which is a town in, in England, and Pompeii, uh, the Roman town that famously the volcano erupted and destroyed in 79 AD. And there's one of these Rotos Sator squares there. Uh, it's a Latin palindrome that is you know a word that means the same uh, forwards uh, as backwards and it's written both horizontally and vertically uh, we have uh, one there a picture of, of the one from Pompeii I think uh, and it can be translated if you read it uh, just straightforwardly literally as Arepo the sower holds the plows at work or Arepo the sower holds the plows with care. Again there's some debate over the, the translation. Uh, now it's been noted, we see it down at the bottom right here, that you can arrange the letters of this square into a cross with the single uh, letter N 
perhaps uh, standing for, for the divine name uh, at the at the centre, uh, as it's in the, the centre of the, the square. Uh, there, let's point to see uh, here. Uh, and the words uh, "Our Father, Pater Noster," which is the opening of the Lord's Prayer, right? the opening line of the Lord's Prayer, "Our Father." Paternoster in Latin, and then you get left over two sets of the letters A and O. Uh, the first and last letter of the Greek alphabet, Alpha, Omega, uh, and of course Jesus uh, is referred to in Revelation 1.8 uh, as saying, I am the Alpha and the Omega, who was and is and who is to come, the Almighty. So maybe this is a combination of the opening line of the Lord's Prayer and this Alpha Omega uh, Christian reference. But the letters may also be arranged into a prayer, uh, Auto Te Peter, Auto Te Peter Sanus, uh, I pray to you, Father, I pray to you, Father, you heal. Uh, so the symbolism of this Latin palindrome uh, you could take it as uh, Jewish symbolism, have a look at Isaiah 9.6 and 46.10, uh, and or Christian uh, symbolism. Uh, and uh, there's a, a discussion there to be had. So let's put, put a timeline here. If we have a crucifixion in uh, 33 AD, and then we have lines uh, marking off uh, 100-year intervals. So here's 100 AD, 2nd century, 200 AD, 3rd century, 300 AD. This red line here represents the Council of Nicaea in 325 AD. Just from looking at this bunch of archaeological evidence, uh, if the Pompeii Rotus Square is referencing Christian beliefs, that puts that imagery of uh, the Paternoster first line of the Lord's Prayer from Jesus and the I am the Alpha and the Omega, the Almighty, within about 50 years of the crucifixion. Um, that would undermine even those claims about early high Christology that, that try and push it to around sort of 100 AD. But as I say, I think that one is debatable, disputable, kind of, you can interpret it differently. Uh, perhaps further debate, um, further findings of context of other things with it or so on might help clarify that in the future, who knows. Uh, but if we go to uh, NCE 156, perhaps with a mixture of, of Christian and, and pagan concepts there, but we still do get this phrase about the, worship, you know, the Father and the Son in, in the same breath. Um, that's within our, well, the dating is a bit vague, uh, but say 150 to 200 years uh, after the crucifixion, something like that. Uh, and then we have this uh, clo more closely bunched, we have the Axominos Graffito, 
and then the Megiddo Church and the Europos Church are uh, of very similar datings, which would put an early high Christology, and I think these are very clearly uh, now very clearly Christian views of the divinity of, of, of Jesus within 200 to 230 years of the crucifixion, just from the archaeological record that happens to have survived and been discovered by now. Uh, remembering that the Council of Nicaea is 325 AD uh, to have evidence uh, of a divine view of Jesus from 200-230 AD means that we're predating the Council of Nicaea, Nicaea by 100 to 135 years with this data, uh, which is a pretty big margin of error. Uh, British uh, philosopher who's um, an agnostic called Anthony O'Hare, uh, who was a uh, director of the Royal Institute of Philosophy, uh, in his book Jesus for Beginners, uh, comments that we should remember that Jesus' first followers were pious Jews to whom the claims being made, the claims about the divinity of Jesus, uh, would have seemed blasphemous had they not been given strong reason to believe them, to believe those claims, and were better than from Jesus himself. He's basically saying, why would the earliest followers of Jesus adopt a high Christology, a divine view of Jesus in the terms of their culture, not pagan divinity, but Jewish divinity, if Jesus hadn't done anything himself to encourage them to have such a view. The simplest, most straightforward explanation of the earliest Christian beliefs about Jesus that you see uh, reflected uh, certainly in the New Testament text and that it seems to be corroborated in the archaeological record uh, is that they got this idea from Jesus himself. Uh, but having such a divine view of Jesus it, in that culture was extremely, extremely embarrassing. Um, it's not a comfortable thing to say you worship a crucified criminal. <laughs> That's not an easy sell. Um, as illustrated by the, the Aksominos graffito, even in you know, 200 AD, it's, it makes you an object of ridicule to say you worship a crucified guy. As Bart Ehrman, a famously sceptical agnostic New Testament scholar, says it's highly improbable that the earliest Palestinian Jewish followers of Jesus would have made up the claim that the Messiah was, was crucified, or that anyone later would have made up that claim. As well, Bowman says, it, it would never have occurred to anyone in the first century, or I think in the second century, or, you know, to invent a story about a crucified man as the divine saviour and king of the world. Uh, something extreme and dramatic must have happened to lead people to accept such an idea. So let's uh, take a break uh, there, because we're going to move on to some other topics. For our uh, last stretch uh, on this exciting tour through some highlights of New Testament archaeology. Uh, 
this uh, heel bone on the right here with a uh, nail through it was discovered in 1968 uh, uh, in a burial site with about 35 uh, bodies. Uh, and this heel bone came from this uh, ossuary. So we mentioned several ossuaries today. There's an ossuary uh, with the uh, name on the side of it of uh, Johannen Ben Hagel, uh, Johann, uh, son of Hagel. Uh, he had a, a seven inch long nail driven through both feet. Uh, so quite clearly, uh, Johannen had been crucified. And it, what's more, he had been given uh, at least a relatively honorable burial and had been reinterred uh, in this ossuary. Now, various critics sometimes deny that uh, a crucifixion victim, such as Jesus, uh, would have been buried. They point out that the usual practice, after <laughs> being crucified by the Romans, was basically for your corpse to be chucked into a shallow grave for the local dogs and carrion to have at your remains. And that's true. But uh, what generally happens doesn't exclude what sometimes happens. And we, of course, have the stories in the Gospels of Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus going and asking for the body and um, being allowed to bury it. And according to what we know of Jewish law and the way in which Romans, at least in a, in a time of not a time of war, uh, just for the sake of peace, would have allowed Jews to carry on their normal religious uh, ceremonial practices and so on, it seems historically quite plausible. Um, that uh, Jesus would have been uh, allowed to be uh, buried. But sometimes people will say, oh, but that story about you know, the burial of Jesus must be made up because crucifixion victims weren't buried. They say, but hang on, th that, those stories are evidence that in this occasion at least, a crucifixion victim was buried, right? <laughs> you can't just beg the question. Uh, from the general and say, you know, that rules out uh, an inference to a complete uh, denial of that ever happening. And where, where you have to take into account the specific evidence. But here it's nice to note that from archaeology, this indeed is, is our only archaeology relating to a crucifixion victim. Uh, you know, the Romans slaughtered thousands of people this way uh, after uh, slave revolts uh, and so on and crucify them. But this is the only bit of archaeology we have relating to a crucifixion victim and it just so happens to be a crucifixion victim who was buried, <laughs> right? Uh, so that shows at the very least that it could happen uh, as the Gospels say it did to Jesus. Uh, and then we 
plausibly have Jesus's empty tomb. Uh, here's a quote from the National Geographic. There was a, a whole project recently to uh, restore and renovate uh, the uh, Church of the Sepulchre uh, and the, the sepulchre her, here within it and so on. Uh, Dan Bahat is the former city archaeologist of Jerusalem. Uh, talking in, uh, to National Geographic, uh, says, we may not be absolutely certain that the site of the Holy Sepulchre Church is the site of Jesus' burial. We're not certain about that. But we certainly have no other site that can lay a claim nearly as weighty. This is the best attested uh, claim. Uh, and we really have no reason to reject the authenticity of the site. Uh, mortar that was recovered during the 2016 renovation uh, from uh, the insides of the, the sepulchre. Uh, again, like, like with Peter's house, we talked about you know, a building and then a church around it and then a church around that and a church around... It's kind of like Russian dolls as people gradually build more and more impressive buildings around buildings. Uh, similarly here, that's kind of what's happened over history. You know, a little, little, little monument inside a, a bigger monument inside a great big church. Uh, but mortar recovered during the 2016 renovation was dated uh, to as early as AD 345, so 4th century, uh, using optically stimulated luminescence uh, about which I, I know nothing, uh, which uh, supports the traditional dating of the construction of the first church of the Holy Sepulchre to mark uh, the tomb of Christ during the reign of the Roman Emperor Constantine. Remember earlier we mentioned Constantine's mother, Egeria, who went on pilgrimage to view the sites in the Holy Land and recorded them in, in her diary uh, and so on. And this uh, church was built at that time uh, to commemorate according to the local tradition uh, where uh, Jesus had been buried. Uh, Frank Hibbert, again uh, National Geographic's archaeologist in, in residence, uh, says that uh, here we, we have a, a picture uh, and you can see um, this is the, the marble slab within the sepulchre that covers uh, what is said to have been the, 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 the shelf within the tomb upon which Jesus' body would have been laid. And, and here, because it was you know, cracked and things, they've taken it away. They took away the marble to see what was underneath and find this uh, rock shelf. Frank Hibbert says it appears to be visible proof that the location of the tomb has not shifted through time, something that scientists and historians had, had wondered for decade, um, for decades. Uh, then we have uh, what's called the, the Nazareth inscription. It was uh, acquired uh, in the 19th century uh, in uh, Nazareth. Uh, it's a Greek inscription on a stone slab. Uh, very likely uh, this inscription uh, dates to the reign of the Emperor Claudius, which is uh, AD 41 to 54, so f still uh, 
mid first century uh, AD there, uh, around the, the turn of the middle of the century. And it's an inscription uh, issuing a um, imperial proclamation uh, that forbids, under penalty of death, robbing bodies out of tombs. Now, that had been illegal before, but this proclamation is increasing the penalty for robbing bodies out of tombs. Uh, an inscription associated with Nazareth, which is said to have been the hometown of Jesus, of Nazareth. Um, so, plausibly, one might think that news about this new strange Jewish cult had reached the ears of the emperor, uh, causing uh, trouble and strife uh, in the provinces. Uh, and it all seems to come down to this guy that Pontius Pilate executed uh, and that was uh, buried. And then people are saying he's sort of somehow, I don't know, risen to heaven or something. Uh, they're, they're still sort of carrying on his disciples in his name afterwards. Uh, and it's all sort of to do with this tomb being empty for some reason, you know, probably someone stole the body, right? Uh, um, so what we better do is increase the penalty for grave robbery just to, uh, to put a lid on any of this sort of thing happening again in the future. Some Jewish messiah cult um, wanting to rebel against Rome, as messiah cults generally did, and Rome killing their messiah figure, as they generally did. And that generally put an end to it. But in this case, we have a bunch of Jews following a guy they think is the Messiah, even though we've killed him. Because the tomb is empty or something. I mean, obviously someone just stole the... Maybe they just stole the body in order to make up the story or something. But let's put a lid on that, you know. So this is, you know, quite plausibly to be taken as, as uh, sort of independent uh, evidence uh, that there was something uh, known in association with uh, uh, Jesus and empty tomb. Uh, yeah, it makes it makes light, sense in light of the Jewish argument um, that was recorded even by Matthew in Matthew twenty-eight that Jesus's body had been stolen. Um, now, of course, as an act, actual explanation for why the tomb uh, is empty, uh, particularly to say that the disciples stole the body, therefore knew that Jesus was still dead and decaying. Uh, and then let's go and proclaim to everyone uh, in our culture under the boot of the, the Roman jackboot uh, that our uh, Messiah figure uh, has risen from the dead and uh, is the king of the Jews. I can't see anything going wrong with that plan uh, because it's so obviously going to uh, rebound to our benefit. Like, yeah, I know, getting kicked out of your local synagogue, perhaps getting yourself crucified by the Romans or something. Seems like a good list of perks. Let's make that story up. You know, it doesn't really uh, hold together psychologically, uh, does it? Or in light of everything else we know about the disciples, etc., etc. Uh, and you don't go down that whole rabbit warren of discussions about, you know, how do you explain the empty tomb? 
Anyway, that's an interesting bit of archaeology that, that plausibly relates to that. So, let us uh, summarise in one, as it were, where we have got to, what we can say in terms of comparing uh, the Gospels to the archaeological record that we have accumulated thus far and asking, you know, do they fit together, to what degree, if any, does the archaeology fit with, corroborate or verify uh, the things uh, that the Gospels claim. And when you put it all together, I think this is quite an impressive kind of list, really, that we can say on the basis of archaeology that uh, Jesus, son of Joseph and brother of James, the James who was buried in Jerusalem in the middle of the first century, existed in the first century in, in Israel. Uh, that uh, Jesus was crucified uh, and that generally means you you die yeah <laughs> uh, that a crucifixion victim could be buried you know, receive a proper burial uh, even if a, a hastily arranged one uh, that Jesus uh, was buried uh, and thus was probably dead yeah? uh, in a now empty Jerusalem tomb that at the time was just outside the first century city walls. Uh, that grave robbery was an offence that may have been particularly associated with another where the New Testament says Jesus uh, came from uh, by the early second century. Uh, um, even before that, I, I think there might be a little fudge on the date there. Uh, when did we, we say here? Yeah, the reign of Claudius, AD 41 to 54. So that's the, um, the mid middle of the first century. So certainly by uh, the early second century, but middle of the first century. Uh, that despite having been crucified, which was highly culturally embarrassing, Jesus was considered divine by some people within maybe 50, but certainly 175 years of his crucifixion. That in the early 3rd century, and we're talking like 200 to 230, 235 AD, Jesus was held to be divine in what's pretty clearly the, the sort of robust Judeo-Christian sense of divinity. Uh, and that is a heck of a long time before the 325 AD Council of Nicaea. And Going back to our sort of argument from inferring from lots of individual cases that we mentioned at the beginning of our first session, uh, that the, the first century biographies of Jesus, the Gospels in the New Testament, have been repeatedly verified by archaeological discoveries uh, that relate to places 
from entire cities to individual buildings or pools. Uh, people, people's names, people's titles, uh, people's interrelationships, family relationships that are mentioned. Uh, cultural details like, you know, how many people could you fit in a, in a fishing boat? Um, where might one sleep on a fishing boat in that culture? Um, and people's uh, beliefs uh, after the time of Jesus about who he was, all of which should encourage us to some degree of trust in those documents, in those Gospels, on matters where we aren't as yet at least able to independently verify them by comparing them with some bit of archaeology that we've dug up. Which is, I would suggest, a surprising amount to be able to say about the historical Jesus just by um, corroborating what we find in the Gospels with what we find in the archaeological record. Astonishing stuff. So, we have time for questions. Do avail yourself of that time if you wish to, otherwise we'll um, all pull up stumps and uh, go for a walk or something. <laughs> yeah? Do you ever uh, worry that some things may be overanalyzed? Like, for example, the Leverato's square? Yeah, I, uh, do I worry that things might be kind of overanalyzed or overinterpreted or sort of interpreted with bias? Perhaps, and of course, you know, all archaeologists, like all people, have bias. Um, but archaeology is, uh, you know, a scientific field where people have to publish things in the professional literature in peer review process. Uh, so that is one kind of uh, defence uh, against that. Um, so I'm not, uh, you will have noticed that I don't just quote in this talk from, you know, Christian archaeologist so-and-so from uh, such and such Baptist university in the Bible Belt in America. I'm quoting very often from Jewish archaeologists who, of course, do a lot of this work in Israel. Um, Jewish, uh, and by that I mean Jews who are not Christians because they're Jews who are Christians as well, but Jewish archaeologists or secular archaeologists quoting reports uh, on like LiveScience.com or from National Geographic uh, and, and so on. So I'm trying to appeal to sources that are, are, are not really vulnerable to an accusation of, oh, well, they would interpret it that way, wouldn't they? You know, uh, which I think is a sort of useful apologetic sort of methodology. Um, always quote people who generally disagree with you on the points where they do disagree, agree with you. Uh, that's a useful thing to do. Uh, and I've also tried to be careful in, in sort of laying out where the claims that I'm making are disputable or a matter of debate and discussion. You know, I said the Rotos Square can be interpreted maybe a couple of ways, and I didn't, I didn't hang very much on saying, you know, this is evidence of a, of a high Christology within 50 years of the crucifixion. What I really said was, we've got good evidence for a high Christology a long time before the Council of Nicaea, <laughs> so that completely 
sinks that claim. But really, you know, I did mention if you really want to undermine those claims about an evolutionary Christology whereby Jesus began to be thought of as divine towards the end, like at the, at the turn of the first to the second century, then I think that much better evidence is to be had from, from the literary evidence. Um, and I mentioned that, that paper that I published that looked at both the archaeology and the, the, the letter of James. Um, you can find that uh, it's probably online from Theophilus, online places, and also in my in my book, um, Getting at Jesus, my recent book, looking at what new atheists say, say about the historical Jesus, I had, had a whole section uh, that covers some of that archaeology about people's beliefs about Jesus and the, the Dura-Europos church and the also the James Ossery's in there and so on, having a, a more extended discussion. Um, more quotes from different people and references that you can perceive. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, that's a good kind of properly sceptical question to ask. Yeah. Anyone else? Mm. Uh, what about the letters and scriptures, apart from the Gospels and the New Testament? Um, yeah. So what, what about uh, letters or, or scriptures or Gospels, so-called, apart from those that are gathered in, into the New Testament? No, the, the ones that are a, a part of the New Testament, but... Uh, right. Uh, like the letters. And, uh, okay, so, so, I mean, I've talked about the letter of James, which is probably the earliest such document but certainly you could go to um, lots of the other literature the letters of Paul of Peter John um, uh, I mentioned a little bit we didn't do very much about the book of Acts by Luke the sequel to, to Luke's gospel um, to similarly kind of get information about Jesus or, or to ask you know, do they mention things that you can check in the archaeological record? Um, now, that's that's more the case, say, with something like Luke, which is a, a historical... I mean, one of the things that Luke is doing is laying out a history of the early church, right? Um, up until Paul gets to Rome. Um, and there, there's lots and lots of details that you can check against external biblical evidence and archaeology and so on. Um, and you might look at, I think, um, it's a book by Colin Hamer, I think, um, Acts in the um, Context of the Hellenistic World, or something like that it's called. And he sort of goes through just looking for those little, little historical details in Acts, and then looking at what the extra-biblical data is. Uh, Colin Hamer um, is the guy to look up. Um, Whereas when Paul is giving pastoral advice to Timothy, it's kind of obviously not going to mention historical things or places or objects as, as, as frequently. Um, uh, not that you never do, because you, you might say, you know, I'm writing this to the church in Corinth. It's like, okay, was there a city called Corinth at that time? Uh, yes, tick. Yeah. Uh, People might not be hugely surprised by that, but it, it is a thing you can check, you know. Uh, yeah. Uh, when he's talking about, again, in like letters to the Corinthians, 
um, if you were in that session with Amy or Ewing, she was talking about some of the biblical background to some of Paul's pastoral advice about men and women in the church and putting it against the, the context uh, of um, in Ephesus in, in Ephesians uh, about Artemis worship, uh, the pagan cult of Artemis in Ephesus. And um, you know, Luke records when Paul preached there, there were riots caused by the worshippers of, of Artemis. Um, he dragged uh, Paul to the to the Colosseum, to the uh, amphitheater in Ephesus, and so on. So there are things that you can check about, like you know, not only was was Ephesus there, but was there a first-century amphitheater, and was there a cult of Artemis, and etc. So yeah, there's lots that you can. You know, this is a huge field, and so I'm like, okay, I limit myself to mainly looking at a few highlights and a few categories of things uh, in uh, in the central texts. But yeah, lots and lots to explore, uh, and I'm sure I've given you lots of references uh, somewhere. <laughs> yeah, uh, in that little PDF booklet you can download on digging for evidence from the New Testament, for example. Uh, anyway, anything else? Hmm. Okay, good. Stunned silence, marvellous. Uh, Enjoy the rest of your, your time. It's nice to have been with you and to be able to... F this is the first year I've been able to follow up the group that was on the, on the study tour with uh, a sort of continuation of the same subject matter that I talked about on the study tour. And I, uh, I hope that's uh, worked well. Uh, so do say if it has and do say if it hasn't as well because we want to respond to uh, your needs and give you the, uh, the best education we can give you. Uh, otherwise, I'm quite happy to uh, stop 20 minutes early and uh, go and get another drink. Maybe a coffee, that would be good. Yeah. Uh, I'm hanging around still, so if you want to chat one-on-one -on -one or, or anything, I'm very more than happy to do that. Thanks very much, guys. Oh.